Thanks for tuning in to House Things, a podcast and radio show from the David A. Howe Public Library recorded right here in Wellsville, New York. I'm Nick Gunning, and today my guest is Mike Vosberg. Mike is an artist and illustrator who's worked with DC and Marvel Comics on projects like Cloak and Dagger, Superman Family, The X-Men, Ms. Marvel, and of course, The Savage She-Hulk. He's also worked extensively in television on shows like The Superpowers Team, Galactic Guardians, Hulk and the Agents of Smash, G.I. Joe, Gem and the Holograms, Captain Planet of the Planeteers, Tales from the Crypt, Street Fighter the Animated Series, Superman the Animated Series, Wolverine and the X-Men, and many, many more. Today, Mike and I are going to be talking a little bit about his history in comics and television work and just diving into all the interesting things he's been able to do in his life. So let's tune in to my conversation with Mike Vosberg. Today I'm here with Mike Vosberg. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on How's Things. Oh, you're welcome, Nick. Uh, so, you know, I was trying to figure out where I first came across your work, and I was assuming it was the Savage She-Hulk. But actually, as I was looking more into your TV credits, I think it would have been the Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians. Now, I was a, I was a huge fan of all things Super Friends, and I know this was a was an early early entry in your TV career. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about working on the Superpowers Team and how that got going and what your experience was like. My first work that I was doing in animation was for a man named Bob Dranko. And then we worked together on Bionic 6. Okay. So I was doing some things like that for Bob. So if that's where the credit came from, you know, you, you do things like man holding a shovel. Sure, sure. You know? <laughs> so you weren't really, I was really familiar, like, okay, what show is this for? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I I know, you know, a lot of things in animation of that time and even earlier, you'd see recurring backgrounds kind of pop up, whether it was, you know, He-Man or Star Trek, the animated series or whatever. Sometimes you'd see some of those same backgrounds. So that's how it was. You just kind of got specific assignments and they'd put them on whatever show needed them. Yeah. I mean, it's like every every show that would come out, uh, you'd get the script and then someone would go through the script and they would go, how many backgrounds they needed? Three, four, five or, you know depending on the budget of the show, too. Okay. Um, and then they would also go through other new characters. We need to design a new character. And then it would be props. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever, sure. whatever it was that they needed, and you would end up drawing that. And so those were kind of my first, the first things I was doing in animation. I was, you know, I was working in comics at the time, but sure. I was working for, for freelance work because I just moved out here. So that was um, the first thing. So within a year or so, I was doing a lot of work storyboard work for um, Marvel Studios on mm-hmm. G.I. Joe. Sure. And uh, the other uh, show was actually Gem. I love Gem. I love Gem back in the day. That was one of my favorites. Uh, I did a lot of the music videos. Oh, okay. Uh, my wife and I had moved here to uh, Los Angeles, and particularly in Tahunga, because I had been working on a create-our-own series through Marvel called Sisterhood of Steel. Okay. And the writer on that was uh, Christy Marks. And Christy and her husband lived here in Tahunga, so I visited them, and I thought, well, when we move to Los Angeles, that's a good place to, uh, we'll find a place there, and then we can, you know, find out where we want to live after that. Yeah. Um, and we've never made it out of Tahunga. We love it here. So. <laughs> uh, but, but, but also, Christy was the one who developed the whole Gem series, okay. as well as uh, she had written a number of the G.I. Joe scripts, so she was in, you know, 
she was a good, uh, uh, I guess, conduit for me in sure. terms of, okay, you should go talk to these people, and they're, they're looking for artists. And mm-hmm. at the time, Marvel was just gearing up to do all the animation work. They had a ton of animation work. Oh, yeah. And they didn't have enough people to do it. And I can remember, you know, I was here, and I would show my work, and they would go, well, you do comic books. You really don't know how to do storyboards. Okay. And I'd go, fine. You know, it's something I can learn. And, and the guy who hired me at Marvel said, look, I'll tell you what we'll do is we're going to bring you in as a uh, an assistant to someone, and you can kind of, you know, help them on a board. Okay. Uh, to kind of learn the process. Oh, okay, I see. And, um, and the next time I talked to him, I said, well, we actually, uh, we don't have anybody like that right now because they're all busy doing their own stuff. So I think we might do is uh, have you come in and we'll give you a board and we'll supervise you while you do it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And then when I went to get the board, they went, hey, look, we don't have any space right now for you to come in. So just take the board, go home and do it. <laughs> and when you bring it back, we'll fix it as best we can. Okay. Wow. And I went, okay. So I came home and I did the board. I brought it back and they looked at it and went, oh, wow, you want a job? You're hired. Oh, wow. And, uh, That's... Um, well, I mean, my influence as an artist was far more in film than it was in comics. I mean, I love sure. comic books. But for storytelling, I had always been in love with movies. Mm-hmm. So my friend Warren Greenwood told me one time, he said, oh, you want to draw storyboards? Well, I can explain you how to do that if you got about 15 minutes. <laughs> So, okay, um, and you know there were there were things you had to learn about in film, the size of the, you know what, what you're looking at yeah. remains the same all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know whereas in comic books, you could do like twenty panels on a page or one panel, and you know uh, change the size of them, change the shape of them. When you're doing storyboards, you always worked on one size frame. You know with the yeah. three to four ratio, whatever okay. it was. So, I mean, you had to learn that, and you had to learn about screen direction, which they gave me these really complicated things about you don't cross the line of access, and blah, blah, blah. And basically, somebody else explained it to me very simply, and they said, hey, look, if you've got your character and you draw them on the right side of screen in the first part, you can't draw them on the left side unless you show how he gets there. Mm. And I went, oh, oh, that's pretty simple. Yeah. So, you know, there were, there were things like that that I, I had to kind of pay attention to. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, one of the things they were running into were they had, you know, just, you know, the, the best guys in comics, like Joe Kane and Jack Kirby, sure. were doing boards for them, and they weren't adapting to what they were doing. They were, like, they were drawing comic book stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, they were very successful at that, and that's what they did. So there were other guys that they were bringing in at the same time, and that, that was kind of a, you know, a common problem was that, well, we get these great-looking boards, but they're comic books. Mm. So, I mean, the fact that... that when I turned in the board, it was, you know, 90, 95% accurate for them sure. in terms of what you wanted to do on, yeah. on that. They said, hey, you want a job? It was far more money than I was making in comics. I'm sure, yeah. Far less work. Yeah. So uh, how, how much of the skills that you gained as a comic book artist, like how, how helpful were those in transitioning here? And what were some of the things you had to kind of relearn moving to a different medium like that? Well, for one thing, in comic books, you were really, you had to draw quickly, you had to draw accurately and cleanly. Well, all those things applied in storyboards, but the level of drawing that you had to apply in a comic book, you didn't have to do that in a storyboard. Sure. So what I normally saw when I was starting to work in comics, guys were always complaining about the deadline. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh my God, how am I going to get this done? 
You know, we only got two weeks to do this third of an act that they'd give us. Mm -hmm. For me, I wasn't struggling with the drawing at all. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was sitting there every day going like, okay, you know, here's this guy's shoe. How do I do it? Because those were things that I, that I, like I said, I had spent a lot of time worked out. I was working, you know, for yeah. photo reference on things. So I didn't have to spend a lot of time working on, on you know, to get the drawing correct. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the, the, the biggest criticism they would always give me was like, well, the drawings are real pretty, but I mean, you know, you've got to be, be careful about the film sense. Mm. Okay. Uh, and which was a fair assessment. But at the same time, it's like, you know, what I was doing with my approach to film was pretty strong, too. Okay. Okay. So depending on who, what editor you worked with, they had their own little dogma that they wanted you to follow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the guys I worked with used to drive me nuts. Uh, after I'd come out of the office, the producer would come out and go like, Mike, I'm so sorry. He does that. I'm really, don't, you don't listen to it, but you do it. And his thing was always, Make sure you get the characters right in the middle of the frame. Oh, okay. So never show the back of anyone. Mm. You know, and it's like all these things that were like, well, that's interesting storytelling. Oh, no, no, no. You want to do it this way. You know? Uh, like, oh, so, yeah, that uh, seems a little limiting. Yeah. Hmm. So it was, you know, it was, those were the kind of things that I, that I really, you know, learned. And, and like my friend Warren explained, you know, oh, that'll take 15 minutes. Yeah. And there were always little things as, you know, um, one of the things I didn't do enough of it probably would have been a great help was um, when you did a storyboard, the pencil tests came back or, you know, from the studio and you would sit around and you look at them and you kind of see like, ooh, that looked great on the board, but doesn't quite work here. Mm. I would get less involved in that. I mean, okay. it was, that would have been helpful. But then on the other hand, I didn't want to become a director or a um, producer, whatever. Sure. It was for me, it was just like, okay, I want to make sure I got a good, clean board for you mm -hmm. and move on from there. Well, looking at your list of credits, I feel like you hit a lot of the things that were my favorites growing up. So that's just kind of fun to see all the different projects you had the opportunity to work on. Now, I'm curious, like going back even earlier, you grew up in Michigan, right? Right. Yeah, what part of Michigan are you from? I'm from Battle Creek. Ooh, well, see, I lived in Battle Creek for a while. Oh, did you? But I lived in Battle Creek later. I grew up in Pontiac. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, I have family uh, in Pontiac, yeah. So, I mean, the good thing was... Um, I was in high school when Jerry Bales started to put out his alter ego fans and basically started comic book fandom. Okay. So from the beginning, I was introduced to all these guys who were doing um, their own fanzines. Sure. And so, you know, I, I, there was, a, you know, guys in, in the neighborhood. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, Jim Starlin. Yeah, he lived in, a, in you know about twenty miles away in Berkeley, and he, he was like thirteen at the time. I was probably sixteen or seventeen. <laughs> I remember him drive, riding his bicycle out to my house, you know. Friends. Yeah, and uh, I came home from like whatever it was football practice or something, and there's this kid that's like, you know, hey, we we heard you made fanzine, and uh, so we became good friends. And um, when I got ready to, you know, he introduced me to Milgram because that was his buddy from high school there okay. in Berkeley. Wow. Um, and, um, boy, who else at the time? There was Rich Buckler was doing stuff. Okay. So, I mean, you know, it, it's like, I'm sure Jerry probably introduced us to all these guys. Mm -hmm. And when I finished college, I taught school for three years. Okay. Until my, uh, draft deferment, uh, my number was high enough that, uh, I, I, you know, was yeah. finished with the draft. Okay. So when that, that was done, I had a certain amount of freedom that I said, well, I kind of like to, uh, you know think about comics what made it real for me was starlin was just back from the navy at the time and he had gotten work at marvel okay 
And um, uh, in my youthful arrogance, uh, it was like, wow, Jim could get work. Maybe I could get work too. <laughs> um, it was. What you have to remember is growing up in Pontiac, the idea of drawing for comic books. I was like saying, I'm going to move to Hollywood and become a movie star. Sure, yeah. No, of course. It was, um, you know, it was a dream job. Mm -hmm. And of course, like I said, seeing guys like Buckler and Darlin and and like I said, Milgram followed pretty soon after. And there was a whole slew of guys from Detroit. There was Terry Austin Mm -hmm. and uh, Mike Nasser and Arbel Jones later on. So, I mean, there was no shortage of people. And we were all working together as fans. Yeah. So we get a lot of criticism of our work. I don't want to say criticism, we get helpful criticism. Sure, yeah. In terms of, oh, you should be trying to do this or, or you should be trying to do that. Well, it sounds like a pretty and, good cohort yeah. you were working in. So, yeah, I imagine that would be very helpful input. It's like one of the other funny things I always remember was I get a call from these two teenagers in uh, uh, Levittown, New York, uh, who call me collect, of all things, and <laughs> said, hey, we heard you could do a fan, you do a fancy, could do you explain to us how you do one? Oh, wow. And so, so I spent like, you know, 30, 40 minutes on the phone with them and then explained to them like, you know, great. I hope that helps. Next time, please, oh, don't call me collect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was, um, that was Len Wein and uh, Marv Wolfman. Oh, geez. So, I mean, that's kind of the way things were being done at the time. And of course, by the time I broke into comics, they were both, you know, well-established. So anyway, I did some work for Marv. I never did do anything with Len for okay. some reason. Yeah. He always talked to me, well, we always got to do something, but uh, it never, never quite happened. So. Was there anybody that you kind of looked up to or, you know, when you were, when you were trying to break in that you were like, man, this is like, this is the artist I love. Was there anyone like that that you were, you know, a, a fan of or someone whose work you admired that you eventually did get to work with? My two real heroes in comics were, um, you know, Joe Kubert. Sure. That I wrote to, I'm going to send him like a hundred letters <laughs> when I was in high school. And he wrote back a couple times, which I was like, you know, thrilled about. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, and, and Leonard Starr. Mm-hmm. And Leonard, I, I, you know, I got to meet, you know, I got, I got to be good friends both with Joe and Leonard as time went on. And they were guys that I, I truly wow. admired and I loved talking to. But they were really the guys I was looking at. Sure. Gil Kane was someone that I got to be good friends with later. But as a fan, I never liked his work. <laughs> well, once I got to learn a little more about comics, I really came to appreciate what Gil could do as an artist. Yeah. And I also understood, like, I didn't see Gil's pencils. I just saw the finished stuff that had been in. Right, right, right. Um, and, I mean, and, and the classic one for me was Alex Toth. I mean, as a kid, I hated Alex Toth <laughs> because he did an adaptation of The Time Machine Okay. And every guy in the film, we did these wonderful likenesses of uh, Rod Taylor and, and Sebastian Cabot. But Yvette Mimio, who was like my heartthrob at the time, was in that movie. And, and his likeness was nothing like her. Oh. You know? Like, <laughs> you know, who is this hack? And, um, and he, his, his style reminded me very much of Milton Kniff, that, who was like another guy that I didn't appreciate his thinking style. I thought it looked like, you know, he'd used a toothbrush and, you know, he'd used this rough line. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't appreciate the artistry that, that he was creating with his use of blacks and okay. uh, things like that. I was, I was in a much, a much slicker approach to the work. Okay. So, I mean, it was, I, when, I, so when I broke into comics, there weren't guys like that that I was really big fans of. Yeah. The guys that were working in comics at the time that I saw that I thought, wow, I really love their work was uh, John Buscema. Sure, yeah. And um, Gene Colan. Okay. But even Gene okay. Colan's stuff, 
I was familiar with his stuff from Creepy and Eerie, and I loved it when he inked himself. Okay. And and he would do these total things. And oddly enough, Gene's the guy I never met. Oh. One of my other idols that I did get to meet fairly quickly was um, I met Wally Wood a couple times. Okay. And, uh, you know, talk about youthful arrogance. <laughs> my friend Al Milgram told me, he said, yeah, I showed uh, uh, Wally some of your work, and he said, wow, this guy draws girls almost as well as I do. And I remember thinking at the time, almost. <laughs> <laughs> Now you mentioned uh, you mentioned Jack Kirby earlier. Is that someone you ever crossed paths with? Yes, I did. Oddly enough, but once I moved out here, uh, I was with another you know friend who was a comic book artist one day, and we're we're walking along someplace in Burbank, and he goes, "Oh my God, there's Jack Kirby!" <laughs> and he rushes over, and he was with Roz, and you know, and Jack was just, I mean, talk about an ambassador to comics. Mm. He was just the sweetest man. He was oh. oh we live up in Thousand Oaks. You really have to come up and see us sometime. Oh, wow. You know? Unfortunately, I never did. Um, I think I probably met him once or twice after that. Mm-hmm. There was an organization out here called TAPS, which a lot of these people belong to. So, I mean, I would see like Sergio Aragones. And, oh, wow. Um, okay. Uh, who else? Uh, Russ Heath was here eventually. And it was a good thing like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, a Kirby sighting in the street sounds pretty exciting to me. So, I mean, that's a that's a pretty cool one right there. What what well, was the? Know, was, it was fortunate I was with a friend who who knew we who was, recognized him on site. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, what was um, the first job you got, either Marvel or DC, where you felt like, oh wow, this is it, this is the thing, I'm doing it? Actually, the first work that I did in comics were for Underground Comics. Okay. Which it was a way to get your work published. Yeah. I mean, Underground Comics at the time were basically. It was kind of very political, pornographic, <laughs> or guys that wanted to draw comics. Okay. I kind of fit into the latter. Okay. Because uh, my stuff was, you know, mildly erotic, but not pornographic. And I didn't really have too much of a uh, an interest in doing anything too overtly political. Yeah. But I did get a few stories published there. So it was same way in working in fanzines. It gave me a chance to see what happened to the work in reproduction. Mm-hmm. Because you're you're always you're drawing the stuff and it looks oh this looks really cool, and you forget it's going to be printed, in comics it's going to be shrunk down, it's going to be colored, it's going to be lettered over, and you got all these things going on. And that was the other thing in fanzines you were doing all that stuff yourself. Well, in in working in comics uh, you had they actually had professionals that were doing that stuff. <laughs> you know, they could you could actually read the lettering after they did it. Right. <laughs> um, when I came into New York, I think the first two or three visits in there, again, I'd stayed with, I think, Starlin or Milgram, probably Milgram, who was sharing room with Simonson at the same time, too. So, I mean, oh, okay. and, and like, Chaikin was in the building next door, so was Bernie Wrightson. So, I mean, you'd run into all these guys, and they were all, you know, like, hey, you know, they're doing some new stuff over at, uh, you know, D.C., you know, you should talk to Jones over there about this and that, so... Uh, I mean, I would I would come in and I would see. Uh, I think uh, Orlando was the art director then. Okay, he's a guy who I eventually was working with, and he's probably one of the very few editors who actually gave me any helpful advice about drawing and what I was doing wrong. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem, most of them looked at me and they went, "Oh, you're 24. You're probably way too old. Actually, if you're not working in comics now, too old. Uh, oh, okay, you're too old. You know, wow." <laughs> Well, it was the thing. It was like if you're not Neil Adams and and drawing your own syndicated strip at 21, you're you're too late. You're too late. And 
Grandpa. You also yeah. have to understand that most of these guys that were older, you know, Kubert and Leonard Starr and, and Alex Toth and Carmine and uh, Gil Kane, they all were working when they were teenagers. They would come in and, wow. you know, that's what the industry was back in the uh, late 30s and early 40s. So it didn't seem strange for these guys to go like, yeah, I've been working since I was, you know, Kubert, I think started when he was 13 or 14. Uh, oh, that early. You know, yeah. all these guys... You know, by the time they were in high school, they were all working and and doing things. So, for them, it was like, wow. If it, you know, if you're 21 and you're not working, uh, it's probably too late for you already. Jeez. But that didn't phase me very much. I mean, I thought. Yeah. I understood at the time that uh, Hal Foster didn't start his Prince Valiant strip until he was 39 years old. So I thought. Oh really? Yeah, no. still hope okay. You know, well, well, he did Tarzan for years before that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he was a guy who hitchhiked from the wilds of Canada or wherever he was at to uh, Chicago and went to art school there for, you know, a year or so. Okay. And then went out and started getting work. But, I mean, it was it was that old, the age thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and like I said, what I saw was far more important was it's not when you start, it's when you stop improving. Mm. And yeah, one of the things point. that I saw both in animation and comics were a lot of guys would start out and they'd be really good, but they wouldn't get any better. Mm. I mean, it was like, okay. I mean, the reality of comics was it didn't matter if you were, if you were one of the best guys or the worst guys, the difference in rates weren't that different. Oh, okay. I mean, one guy might be making $20 a page. The other guy might be making $40 a page. But mm. I mean, it wasn't like the guy making 40 was driving a Cadillac. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, when I came out here and I started working in animation, I remember them offering me a thousand dollars a week, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've made it. <laughs> um, so I mean, it was. I mean, at the time, I was I was probably making twenty thousand at the most in comics okay. for a year. So the idea of suddenly being offered a job where they were going to pay me fifty thousand dollars a year, I oh was, yeah, I was like I was astounded. Big time for sure. Um, you know, of course, in comics. They offered a marginal amount of royalty payments, things like oh, that. Oh, okay. But it's still, it was not any, you know, it was, you know, if, if you made a few hundred dollars for doing that issue of a comic, you might get another hundred or two for the royalties on and the, on the book. Okay. I mean, there were a few things that I did. I remember, like, some of the G.I. Joe stuff. It was it was like, oh, wow. Off, off the royalties I was getting off G.I. Joe, I remember buying a, uh, a new car. But at the time, you have to remember that new car costs about three to four thousand dollars. A little different. A little different. So I mean, it wasn't you know, and and that wasn't off one issue. That was uh, I remember there was a time later on where I did an, an issue, uh, an X Men annual. And yeah. The royalties off that, I literally did go out and buy a new car. For oh, me. is that true? Uh, yeah. I mean, again, it wasn't it wasn't a new Mercedes. But yeah, um, but still. But it. But like I said, but it, it was it was enough to pay for it and. It was also an interesting lesson about the business itself because I was working with Terry Austin at the time and we were doing Cloak and Dagger. Yeah. That was our series. And Terry called me and said, hey, I'm going to do an X-Men annual. Would you like to work on it with me? And I'm like, well, sure, yeah, you know. Cloak and Dagger came out and it sold, it's, you know, if it made it sold 100,000 copies, it was going to be lucky. And our royalties were, you know, $200 at most off an issue. And at the same time, we had suddenly our X-Men annual came out and it sold a half million copies and we were making thousands of royalties. And I'm going, wow, um, exactly the same creative team, 
but one book is but one different. Yeah. The other, you know, is, is the other is hardly breaking a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it brought home that, that lesson of, it's not so much who's doing the book. Sometimes it's who, you know, what the book is, who the character. Sure. Now I know in uh, that, in that X-Men annual, that's, that's annual number 13. Uh, that's, uh, that, that book is heavy on Colossus and Wolverine and, and Rogue in particular. And I know that you'd, you'd done kind of a legendary Rogue story early on, uh, when you were working with Chris Claremont on Ms. Marvel. Can you talk a little bit about the Ms. Marvel run you did there and the collaboration with Claremont? Oh, you're really going to bring up painful memories, aren't oh, you? Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess so. No. Um, actually, I think I did, Chris, I think Chris probably wrote the Ms. Marvel. I was doing the book and I did about three stories in the book. And they they were canceling it for whatever reason. I'm yeah. not sure what it was. Yeah, I I um, was curious about that because it seems like that story resolved years later in the you know a, a kind of an umbrella book, Marvel superheroes. So I was kind of wondering how that all went down. Well, I was going to say we I think we had one story left over that was uh, some super villain and took place in a subway and they were having a big battle, and that was how that story was going to be resolved. Okay. And at the same time, they said, hey, you know, we want to do a, a further adventure with Ms. Marvel and Iron Man, and I think we're going to bring in um, the rogue characters and yeah. things like that. But I remember I did the first one for Ms. Marvel, and I got to ink it myself. Oh, okay. And I was like, wow, great, because that's really what I want to do in comics. This will give people a chance to see what I can do. Well, of course, after I did the book, it never got printed for another, you know, six or seven years. Yeah. So it was like... Oh, that didn't help much. Yeah, um, right. And then, you know, when the second one came along with Miss Marvel, it was like, ah, oh, cool, I get to do it again, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so I worked on the second one, and the same thing happened. I think I did it, and it was like eight or ten years before they were actually going to print the, the thing in Marvel Fanfare or whatever it was. Yeah. So when the third part of it came along, it was like, eh, sorry, guys, I'm, I'm working in, in animation now, and it, it pays much better, yeah. and, and I'm not trying to convince anybody anymore that I can ink the work myself. And it was a fairly tight deadline to sure. whatever, so I probably had passed on it. Um, well, it's, I mean, I just think that's really interesting in retrospect, because Rogue you know, permanently absorbing Ms. Marvel's powers has become such a staple with both of those characters. That's such a huge part of that. And so for that to be kind of like... And, and all that is news to me. People keep telling me, like, you did the first Rogue. And I'm going, no, actually, uh, the Rogue was a, an established character. I probably did... That was her more of her origin story. I might yeah. have done part of that. Yeah, Rogue, Rogue but, shows uh, up in Avengers as kind of a one-off villain, and then when she absorbs Ms. Mar- Marvel's powers, that's that's the version of the character that's used in like X-Men, the animated series, and pretty much any popular incarnation of Rogue is the one where she absorbed the powers from Ms. Marvel, which is from your book, which kind of got shunted off into a, <laughs> you know, a, a, like I said, in an Umbrella title later. So just wild that something like that. Is, it's become so legendary was was uh, kind of treated like an afterthought at the time. You know, and for me, I can probably tell you what the plots are of every one of Raymond Chandler's and Dashiell Hammett's <laughs> books, but you know, after I was a teenager, I really wasn't very much into comics. I, I liked as a, as a reader, and sure. Mm-hmm. Like, I would read Hawkman, because Joe Kubert did it. Okay, okay. Um, and I uh, I discovered the spirit I, uh, through reprints. I thought, oh, wow, okay. this stuff's really cool. My first stories that I got when I broke into comics, I was doing mystery stories for uh, Charlton and sure, yeah. uh, Gold Key. Uh-huh. And Charlton I liked because, again, I got to ink the stuff myself, so I, I got to kind of see what that was. Uh, the pay was not that good, but 
uh, like I said, it was exciting for me to do. Sure. You know, working for Marvel Comics, I was not a Marvel artist. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I mean, I simply was not interested in the exaggerations. I never read the Fantastic Four and any of those books. Okay. When they were first, I think I probably, you know, looked at the first ones when they came out and read them, but I wasn't a big fan of that stuff. Whereas on the other hand, I was a big fan of Spider-Man because Steve Ditko did it. And sure. I Steve Ditko was just an incredible artist. And yeah. Doctor Strange, even more. Now, was there much collaboration with, with Chris Claremont? Because on the topic of the X-Men, and, you know, he's become sort of the legendary X-Men writer. Did, did you work with him very closely, or was it just sort of, here's the script, go ahead and, and do it? I probably talked with Chris about a couple things when I was doing it. Chris was actually one of the earliest guys I worked with in comics. I think he did a, one of the stories for a, a vampire story for one of the black and white books. And oh, okay. Those were, that, that was probably my first job at Marvel. Okay. Was, you know, again, I was working in the mystery books. Mm-hmm. And then the first regular series I was doing might have been uh, some of the Shang-Chi stories. Because, again, that was Starlin and Englehart had kind of developed that stuff. And yeah. I was a major Fu Manchu fan. So I was really excited about that. Was a little disappointed to see they didn't do that much with him in the series. So, I mean, th- those were kind of my first experiences. But, yeah, yeah, Chris I always enjoyed. I would see him when I would come into New York, too, you know, uh, and we always enjoyed talking. The thing that always drove me, you know, was, was like... Uh, uh, we all worked on plots. I worked on a, on a plot with uh, with Chris. What I didn't learn was, like, draw your characters at least an inch below the top of the panel. <laughs> there was going to be a lot of A lot dialogue. of script. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was always an issue. <laughs> um, That's hilarious. Well, we got to talk She-Hulk. I mean, when I see your name, that She-Hulk is the thing that comes to my mind. You were on Savage She-Hulk for, what, 24 issues, I want to say, most of the run. Was that your first, right, um, was that one of your most long-running gigs on a series? Yeah, I think I did, I did about 20 issues of G.I. Joe and okay, then okay. the 24 of She-Hulk. Give me one second here, I'm going to sharpen my pencil. Okay. I'm talking and drawing at the same time. That's all right, what are you drawing? Oh, I do, I do my own comic books now, just they're my hobby. Okay. Uh, so are you working on a Lori Lovecraft? No, I wrapped up that series. I okay. mean, the Lori Lovecraft stuff, what I discovered was that it required a level of concentration and um, <laughs> a level of lust that, uh, <laughs> that I, I don't really have anymore in comics. <laughs> Got um, it. Now, it's interesting because the Laurie Lovecraft stuff that you've done, and, and a lot of your drawings tend to have kind of a statuesque old Hollywood vibe about that. And I feel like the Savage She-Hulk is kind of the exact opposite, where she's much more more in the vein of like 70s Hulk with the ripped clothing and, you know, wild hair and kind of monstery. Was that, that, was that a decision just made, you know, from on high and, you, and that's just the directive for the book? Or how did that come about? That's what John DeSemma drew in the first issue, so I figured that's what I was Just locking it in. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and nobody, nobody said, oh, she should have a costume. Mm-hmm. Because it kind of was that, you know, antithesis to the character of, like, the first series was just like, oh, my God, every so often I change into this raging beast. Yeah. And it's not like, well, when I do that, I really should go out and pick out a good costume to wear. <laughs> True. I mean, it was like, yeah. I always found the conceit of costumes for superheroes completely acceptable in comics. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when you put a character in a costume in a movie... You have to explain it because your movie audience does not understand why this character is going to dress that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, what is that all about? Yeah, She-Hulk was, was like I said, it was, it was fun because I look at the series 
and I can really see my growth as an artist and a storyteller over a two-year period. Sure, yeah. When I started on, on it, I was kind of like, okay, I've, I've done work. I'm not the new guy breaking in anymore. So I was really able to kind of see myself grow from an established professional to whatever quality of the work. Um, I think at the time, the guy that, that I was really uh, impressed with was uh, Frank Miller was doing a lot of the stuff on Daredevil. Yeah. And I really liked his his approach of storytelling learned from Will Eisner. I mean, one of the things Frank and Will both did was they set a stage and there was absolutely nothing on that stage unless it pertained to the story. Mm. You weren't drawing things in the background or whatever just because like, oh, I like drawing that. Everything that was that, that you saw on that frame applied to the characters and what they were doing. Okay. And I also loved the, the noir aspect of heavily shadowed. Again, I was far more into film, so at the time, I was looking at everything I could find in film, and like I was using a lot of a lot of film book reference for doing stuff. Okay. Um, were there were there specific actors or actresses you were basing things on? Like the look for Jen Walters, was that anything you were pulling from old Hollywood, or just kind of following what was put no, in? No, she was... I don't think I was doing anything with her. I remember one of the villains... Uh, was my wife. <laughs> uh, I think we we date. We were dating and broken up at the time, or whatever. So you know, uh, <laughs> and certainly the there was a character in there. Called, oh, I forget who he was. But I used Orson Welles as the. Oh, uh, okay. You know, whatever whatever that character I, was. I can picture and, what you mean. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, so I was always I was always doing things like that along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, How much does your experience change when? You know, you said with Ms. Marvel, it was you know, maybe three issues or something like that, whereas something like this when you're at 24. Like, how does the experience of being on the same book week after week for two years, you said, how is that a different experience than doing kind of more like one-off things? Like, how does your process change? You get tired of it. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I have the same thing with G.I. Joe. It's, it's it's like, oh, man, you know, it, it, I, again, what you have to understand is, is my reaction to doing comics is, oh, my God, I've dreamt about doing a She-Hope my entire life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was it was um, it was fun to do, but it was an assignment. Yeah, and I, I would enjoy getting them. And, and like I said, I was approaching them from a little different way. Of like, okay, I, w- I was far more interested in character bits. Sure. With how's She Hulk going to react to this? How's Jen going to react to this? But well, one of the, one of and, the things I, mean, I think is so fascinating about that the Savage She Hulk run is that it feels like there's almost an equal weight put on Jen's law career as there is of the Savage She Hulk doing her She Hulk thing. Oh, exactly. In fact, you know, later on they were trying to do like, well, where are we going to go with the She Hulk? And Dave kind of had his own bent too in terms of what he wanted to do with stories. Yeah. which we're like, okay, that's cool, you know. But uh, <laughs> I wasn't that fascinated by some of the saving the microwave tower or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah, whatever. For me, it was like, oh, wait, if I wanted to do a follow-up She-Hulk book, I thought the ideal book would be like, you know, She-Hulk is hired by a movie studio to do a superhero thing mm-hmm. so she can raise some money to pay for all the damage she's been doing to She-Hulk. <laughs> I mean, that was, for me, that was like, okay, that's what I would be doing with She-Hulk, you know. Yeah. And I don't I ever read any of the stuff John Byrne did when he reestablished a character, so I don't know what they were doing mm. in that sense. It's, I mean, it's tonally um, very different. It's much more tongue-in-cheek and fourth-wall-breaking than the Savage run. Which is what I would have done with the series, too. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, this stuff should be for fun. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things was, like, I, I kind of, 
by the end of the run in the She-Hulk, I think I was doing, like I said, a creator-owned book, uh, Sisterhood of Steel at the time. And I was also, uh, there, there was a whole list of people that uh, they felt didn't really work at Marvel. Hmm. And they're trying to phase them out. Okay. I mean, I mean, and there were good people like Jaken and myself and whatever. But you know, it's it's uh, this this was all shooters more influence than anything. Okay. So I was like, okay, you don't do things my way. We want to move on from you. Mm. Well, that doesn't um, sound very stimulating of creativity. Uh, an atmosphere like that. Plus, for me, it was a matter of I knew that if and when the She-Hulk ended, I wasn't going to be getting any more work. Mm. So I mean, it was. Uh, at the same time, I had just moved out here to California, too. Yeah. And, you know, just remarried. And so that was the whole thing for me. It's like, uh, as long as... And I was living in, in Battle Creek at the time. Oh, yeah. What years were you in Battle Creek? I was there from 77 to 83, something like that. Okay. So we crossed over a little bit, living in the same town. <laughs> did you go to Kellogg Community College at all? I did. I got my associate's degree from Kellogg Community College, yeah. Yeah, I had a guy there that was my good friend, Bill Calopy. Okay. He was an art teacher. Oh, wow. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, I, I, was, I was doing stuff all the time for the Battle Creek Art Center. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we could talk about Battle Creek. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was like, I, I was always out at Fort Custer walking in the woods yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was my big thing. Sure. I knew it was time for me to move out then when, uh, I forget the winter it was, it was like 80 or 81, and it started snowing on a Tuesday, and it stopped on a Saturday morning. Or yeah, that, like sounds, that. that sounds par for the and course. And yeah. I had about yeah, yeah. 50 yards of driveway, and I remember <laughs> it took me from Saturday morning until Monday to dig out enough just so I could get my car yeah. out. Yep. And we, we spent the rest of the winter driving around in tunnels. <laughs> where there'd be like a 10 or 12 foot snowdrift on oh, either yeah. side of the road yep. where they plowed it out. Yep. But I, I liked moving to Battle Creek after living in Detroit, but I also, it was time to move on. And I, I think I, I, you know, I moved to uh, South Bend with my uh, uh, wife at the time. And then we, we both, you know, we said, well, let's, let's move to California. <laughs> you know, it was like an impulsive, like, well, that'd be a fun idea. And uh, it, it's one of those dumb things that was like, that was the smartest thing I ever did. Wow. Because it's like I said, in Battle Creek, it was always like, well, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have my comic book job. I'd have to go back to teaching or something. <laughs> and when I moved out to Los Angeles, it was like, how do I get rid of this comic book job? Because there's all this other So many different opportunities. It's a lot more yeah. exciting. Yeah. So, now, uh, looking at your TV credit, it looked like you crossed paths with uh, She-Hulk a little later on Hulk and the Agents of Smash. Did you work on storyboards of, of She-Hulk episodes of that show? I did one that was a lot of fun because it was, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, Marlena Dietrich film called Blonde Venus. I know what you mean. Um, I haven't seen it, though. But anyway, she, she has this whole thing where uh, there's this whole chorus line leads out this, you know, this orangutan. And the orangutan jumps up on a table and jumps up on stage. And then it proceeds to do kind of the slow striptease as one glove comes off and it's just, you know, this beautiful hand. Then another glove comes off and it's this beautiful hand. And then she lifts off the head and it's Marlena Dietrich in this costume. Mm. And it's just like, it's just one of the, you know, and they're playing this great music behind it. It's one of great little bits in film. And I was <laughs> like, well, I got to figure out a way to use that. I think yeah. I used it in my Offcast comic, something similar, but... Uh, I had a chance to, they almost do it like shot for shot in this uh, She-Hulk cartoon. So I was like, okay, that was fun. 
But by that time, animation for me was, uh, I'd moved beyond that. I mean, I had worked for Boo Animation on, on Spawn, yeah. and uh, that was a great job. Uh, and at the same time, I was working, uh, I'd been hired to do the comic book covers they were doing in Tales from the Crypt. Mm-hmm. And that was that was absolutely just like, I mean, I couldn't get more excited about like, here I come with, you know, this, this, a guy from the Midwest who's never been on a movie set before, and all of a sudden, I'm photographing and meeting everybody who's doing anything in Hollywood. And it was like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. And they were paying me about five or six times more for a cover than anybody was paying for what they were doing in comics. Yeah. That was like a, a, a dream job. So strangely enough, the guys that I worked with at HBO was Eric Rodomsky. And uh, Eric then became the creative director of Marvel. Oh, that's how I wound up doing some of those things. But uh, yeah, because you've got quite a few uh, credits here: Avengers, Earth, Mightiest Heroes, Ultimate Spider-Man, Wolverine, and the X-Men. So a lot of the Marvel animation that was going on at that time seems like you crossed paths with at some point. (laughs) Oddly enough, I found myself kind of in the same situation that uh, working for Marvel Animation that I found myself working for uh, Marvel Comic Books. Mm. Yeah. If there was anybody else around, I was going to get work. <laughs> mm, I see. I see. One of the things that happens the longer you work is, um, I mean, like for me, I loved doing live action storyboarding because nobody handed you a model sheet and said, draw it in this style. Mm. They wanted you to draw realistically. And so the, when I was working in live action, that was ideally suited for me. Uh, working in animation... Everybody that came along, there were all these young directors who were going to be the next Orson Welles. <laughs> come hell or high water, they were going to get that kind of board out of you. It was like, A, you're not Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> and, and B, I don't draw that style anyway. So yeah. it, it, was, it was kind of frustrating at times. Mm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, you know, the other thing you learned as an artist was that if you want to stay busy, you're going to hopscotch back and forth between... I worked in advertising, I worked in live action, I worked in animation, I was doing uh, comic books, you know, whatever kind of paid the bills that month. Yeah. So looking back, did that was that X-Men Annual 13, was that your most financially successful comic book ever? You know, I think <laughs> the most successfully financial might actually been I did a fill-in issue. They did this Punisher series. It was a five-issue run. The deadline was so pressing on the last one that uh, Carl Potts brought me in to pencil the book. And I had like two weeks to pencil the book. Wow. um, Yeah. And when the book came out, I mean, I just got castigated by the press, castigated by the writer. You know, the inker was like, well, I did what I could with it. (laughs) Oh, jeez. But the funny thing is they've reprinted that book at least eight or ten times, and every time... I've gotten the royalty on it. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> That's uh, funny. Uh, so it was one of those things where, like, I did it as a favor for Carl, and, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Wow. I guess and so. Was, uh, that was always one of the weird things working in comics. Either people either thought you were a genius or an idiot. <laughs> and if you worked long enough, you were going to be both. Huh. So, I mean, eventually you were going to do that popular series, or, or you were going to fall out of favor. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember that Norman Rockwell ended his career when he could no longer get work from Saturday Evening Post. That's kind of what happens to you as, as an artist. Hmm. And again, like I said, as, as I evolved more as an artist, my style grew out of what was going to be acceptable for the way they were doing comic books. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and like I said, you do stuff and then you move on. Um, and I had a great time working when I was doing comics, but 
like so many things, it's time. It's it's time to to you know to move on to do something different. Sure. I mean, it sounds like you've had a fascinating life and a fascinating career, and I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, if people are, are looking for some of your current work or just want to find more out about you, uh, what's a good place for them to do that? I would go to my website, okay. bozartvozart.com. Okay. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, you're welcome, Nick. The best to you. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you. This was that a lot was of fun. Of my first jobs, by the way. What? I worked as a page in the library when I was in high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that on your website. That's How long were you in the library? I think I was there for three or four years at least. Yeah, that's how I started. It was my my first library job. I was a teenager, and it was just like after class or whatever, I would go, and then it's, you know, it's been <laughs> actually in Battle Creek, Michigan. I worked right at the uh, Willard Public Library right there in downtown oh, Battle yeah. Creek. Yeah. I used to be there all the time. Yeah. Uh, people thought I was a secret agent because nobody knew me in the town, and I'd be in every day. You know, going like, what have you got on Russian uh, uh, equipment and guns? You know, That's so hilarious. G.I. Joe's trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So, uh, and the Federal Building. And, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, well, all that stuff. I lived on, what was it, North Avenue. Okay. And then I also lived on Cherry Street. Yeah, I know that. So, <laughs> That's what a weird coincidence that is. It's a small world. I guess so. Thanks again to Mike Vosberg for sitting down to talk with me today. Crazy that we were in the same town at the same time uh, <laughs> that he went to the library I worked at as a teenager. Uh, what, what a weird coincidence that is. But again, the website is vozart.com, V-O-Z-A-R-T.com. And of course, uh, you can find all of his work uh, for Marvel in DC on the various apps. And we have some right here at the David A. Howe Public Library. So check out Mike's website. Stop in here and check out some of his work. And we will see you next time. <laughs>